Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stumbled. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Good morning. How are we today? Okay, we have some very, very special guests that I'm going to welcome up to the stage. Please give them a round of applause. So these are the ladies from the Cherry Hills Christian School basketball team, the junior high basketball team. And they had a, a crazy season. They had some great moments, some hard moments, some challenging moments. In the championship game that they made it to, uh, they were down the whole game, and then they won the district championship. So you give them a big round of applause. Uh, something cool about our, our school is our executive pastor, Bronson, was the head coach, both of the guys' team who won district and the girls' team who won district. So we wanted to celebrate them today. Thank you guys for being here. Give them one big round of applause. Thank you guys so much. All right, as they are making their way off stage, I wanna let you know about mission trips. So two things about mission trips. One, we're gonna put up on the screen all the mission trips we have for the rest of the year. Uh, but our hope, our, our goal, our desire as a church is to go on more and more mission trips. So, so going into 2024, we're right now planning next year's mission trips. And so much about planning mission trips depends on the, the demand, the desire. And so here's two things you can do to help us. One, if you are interested in any of these mission trips, you can email us at missions at chcc.org. Go ahead and email us. You can either name the mission trip that you'd be interested in going on, or you could simply say, hey, I'm interested in a mission trip. Or in addition to that, if you're interested in going on a trip on 2024, go ahead and email us and let us know that you are interested in signing up. Let me tell you why I think mission trips are such a big deal and an important part of church culture. Uh, it's because personally, my life has been radically changed because of mission trips. I've been on a handful over the course of my lifetime, and probably the one that was the most impactful is when I was about 17 years old, maybe 18 years old, I went on a mission trip to Orizaba, Mexico. And I can just tell you that as a high school student, you can think that you have a good worldview, you can think that you understand perspective until you go experience a completely different world, a completely different culture, a completely different place, and, and God really convicts your heart and helps you realize that, man, you're incredibly blessed. And the perspective that you thought you had, you really didn't have until you went somewhere else. And so could I just challenge you, if you've personally never been on a mission trip, I, I challenge you to go participate, being a part of one, is you've gone on mission trips and nothing stirs our spirit quite like going and participating in the work that we see God doing all over the world. So I'd encourage you, email us, let us know if you'd be interested. We'd love to get you connected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, and enter into 
uh, the last message on the book of Malachi. God, we pray that you would just open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to all that you have for us. Uh, a very God, uncommon book, one that, that we don't spend a whole lot of time in, and yet it's a rich book that is full of, of just practical teachings of how you want us to live today. So our prayer is that you would speak, help me get out of the way for your glory and your glory alone. It's the name of the Lord Jesus we pray, amen. There's a lot of different people that discipline a whole lot of different ways. My grandfather, uh, we called him grandpa. His name was William Buchanan Taylor. Everybody called him Buck. He was a Marine drill sergeant. That's what he was. And so growing up, he was a pretty strict dad to my father. And one of the things that he liked to do to discipline is that my, my dad growing up, it was just him and his brother and they shared a bedroom and at night, sometimes they'd get a little rambunctious. They'd be goofing off, they'd be cracking jokes and he'd come in and he'd tell them to settle down. And then if they continued to make noise, if they continued to goof off, here's what he would do is he would come into the room, he would slide off his belt, he would snap it twice. Then he would take that belt and he would just simply leave it on the doorknob and then he'd walk out. Now my dad said not once in his entire life did my grandfather actually use the belt to, for discipline. But the threat of the belt was enough from a former Marine drill sergeant that it got them in line. That they knew that, hey, we were joking around before, we were cracking jokes before, but all gone, all done, we are going to be quiet. Now, my dad never used the belt, but he had kind of this similar demeanor in how he disciplined. It didn't matter what I was doing or where I was. If I got in trouble, he would just snap, and then he'd point at me, and he'd do this number, which can I just tell you, he never explained to me, hey, if I do this, it means to come here. I just knew. It was just the intuition of when dad did that, that meant that you were gonna go to him, and you were just kind of going like this. And we could be in the middle of a public space. He would take me somewhere close by. I remember one time getting in trouble in the kitchen. There's a bunch of friends over and I, I said something that I shouldn't have said and he snapped and he pointed and he took me into the pantry. And we didn't have that giant of a pantry. It was a very, very small space. And he just would look at me and talk to me. And I just remember being, being like, okay, I'm gonna change my life. I'm gonna, everything's gonna change after I walk out of this pantry. Then my mom on the other hand was radically different. Before love and logic was a thing, my mom used love and logic. And we'd get in trouble, me and my, my siblings, we'd be fighting with each other. And then we, we had these two chairs in the living room and she would go make us sit down in the two chairs. And, and she would look at us very, very soft, very, very quiet, very just, just kind. And she would say, I want you to look each other in the eyes. And I want you to tell me what could you have done differently in this situation? And can I just tell you, I'd, I'd rather gotten the belt than that. Because we would just, a lot of kindness and a lot of time and a lot of feelings, and then we'd hug it out. Uh, but so we, there's all these different discipline styles. Probably how you discipline has some combination of how you were learned or, or saw or observed. Maybe even if you were a teacher, an educator, you have some style of discipline that is true to you. But in general, when we think of that word discipline, we think of it as this, you know, we think of it as a verb that means to train someone to obey the rules or code of behavior using punishment and or reward to correct disobedience. Now that's a good general understanding of it, but can I tell you that this definition is very limited because if this is the only way that you discipline, while you might be modifying behavior, 
You're not correcting the heart issue, which is the most important thing long-term. If you have a child that you do a really good job through reward and punishment of just modifying behavior, but you never get to the heart, then what happens when they're an adult? What happens when they leave your home? If those same risk and rewards aren't there, they're gonna go crazy. And so, so much of real discipline is understanding the heart, guiding the heart, so that when someone is old enough to make decisions for themselves, they're doing it for the right reasons. The same is true biblically when God disciplines his people. That God uses rewards and punishments, but ultimately what God is trying to get to is a transformation of the heart. We see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus' teaching is about the heart, not just the action, it's about the heart. In the book of Malachi, which we have been studying, that that's really what God is getting to. It starts out with an oracle of the Lord. It's a judgment of God. God is saying, hey, I am going to discipline you, so get ready for it. And then really the unfolding of the discipline is that this is what God is trying to accomplish. He's not just trying to discipline, he's looking for more than behavior modification. He's looking for heart transformation. That's why he starts with, oh Israel, I have loved you. I have loved you, I do love you, I will love you, and it's because of God's love that he disciplines. Now sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes when you're being disciplined, whether it's a kid being disciplined by mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, or it's us being disciplined by God, sometimes it doesn't feel loving, and yet that's the heart of God. That because of his love, he doesn't want to just change our behavior, he wants to change our heart. He wants to transform our lives. Today, we're gonna to look at the very last chapter of Malachi. We're gonna look at the, the, really the sum total of all of what God is trying to tell us. And the very beginning of chapter four is answering a question that gets set up in Malachi chapter three, verses 14 and 15. If you've got a Bible, turn with me there. So the whole book is kind of going back and forth between these different disputes. God would say something and Israel would dispute that claim. And then God would give the answer. And then God would say something and Israel would dispute it. And then God would give an answer. And then it kind of turns upside down. And Israel says, oh yeah, but what about? And then God gives an answer to that. So in Malachi chapter three, verse 14, it says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now, we will call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What's it talking about? They're simply looking at the world around them and they're recognizing this truth. That sometimes really evil and terrible people get ahead in this world. That we think, man, only the good, only the righteous should get ahead. That's who God should bless. And yet they look at people that are making poor decisions, that are terrible people, that are evil people, and yet they have worldly blessing. And they're saying, that doesn't make sense at all. Uh, the, the Bible is full of this tension that exists between both of those things. So the book of Proverbs, it's part of what we call the wisdom literature. And so the book of Proverbs, if you follow what it says, you will live a really great, abundant, and full life. Uh, there's a lot of really core principles in the book of Proverbs. It, it tells you to, to not be lazy. It tells you to work hard. It tells you to pursue God. It tells you to avoid sin, avoid temptation. And if you live a life that lives according to those principles, you will 
experience a lot of success in this life. But there's another book that's also in the wisdom literature called the book of Job. And in the book of Job, he does all of those things and yet he suffers tremendously. And so you have one book that says, live a righteous life and God blesses that. And you have another life that says, even if you do live a righteous life, you will experience pain and suffering and tragedy. And so what the nation of Israel is pointing out to God is they're saying, hey, look, we're living what we think is supposed to happen and you're not blessing us, but there's some other people that are not living the way that you've called them to live. They're evil people, they're terrible people, and you're blessing them. And they're saying that doesn't make any sense at all. And so then in chapter four, God gives an answer. God says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Sometimes in traffic, when someone cuts me off, I wanna quote that verse right there. So says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It goes on to say, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Another Hebrew translation to translate is that you will go out like fat calves. The scripture says that one day you will be fat. Praise the Lord. It says, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. What's God saying? God's saying as much as in this world we don't understand, hey, why could sometimes evil prosper and really good people experience pain and suffering? For those questions that you have when you say, I have a loved one who's an incredible person, a wonderful person, a godly person, and yet they got sick with a terrible disease and they died. We lost that person too soon. I don't understand it, I don't get it. And then I see other people in this world who are terrible and evil and they're prospering. God is saying one day, when it's all said and done, God will right size the evil that exists in this world. The, the book of Malachi has this prophecy where it's looking ahead to the coming of Jesus. But what's a little bit confusing for us is that we're in between those two comings. And so there's parts of Malachi that are pointing ahead to the first coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus that happened 2000 years ago. But then there's other parts of Malachi that are pointing ahead to the second coming of Jesus, like this verse. It's saying that one day Jesus will come again. He will return. And when he does return, he will judge the earth and the evil will be removed. and The righteous will be blessed. Prophecy in the Old Testament, sometimes it's a hard thing to understand, but it's really trying to help us understand that if we know the future, it should change how we live in the present. There's a website called Reddit, which is full of a whole bunch of junk and, and trash on it. Uh, but Reddit's fascinating because it, it really lets you understand some of the human psyche. So there's a lot of questions that people ask and, and they can kind of vote up comments and down comments. And so uh, a while ago, there was this question that got posed on Reddit. It simply said, you meet your 13-year-old self, but you can only tell them three words. What do you say and why? Now we got some 13-year-olds over here, so you, you will want to definitely pay attention to the answers. So you, just think for a second for you personally. If you could go back in time and you could have a conversation with you as a 13-year-old, what do you say? Now, you only get three words. 
You gotta make those three words count. So what kind of advice would you give? Here's some of the advice. One is Bitcoin hits 50K, which if I could tell my 13 year old self that, like the word doesn't even exist at that point. But man, if you could hold on long enough and really believe that, it would be a game changer. Another person said, brush your teeth. Write that one down over there. Simply brush your teeth. Man, what solid advice for 13 year old self. Invest in Amazon, 2003. That would have been a life changing advice. Don't date blank. Now, how bad a relationship did that have to be? They could have made themselves a billionaire, but instead they said, I am not gonna date that person. That's what I wanna tell 13 year old me. Gets a little more serious. They say, get brother help. Listen to dad. Hug dad more. Give mom love. And they explain she would pass away a year later. Don't do heroin. Go to therapy. Tell someone, please. You would know what that means. And I think it would save us from years of heartache. And the last one simply says, I love you. Nobody else was saying it to me and meaning it. If you could know the future and you could communicate it to yourself now, would that change how you live? I thought it was interesting. So many of those had to do with family. And if you look through the thread, lots and lots and lots of them have to do with family. So the last three verses in Malachi are really this conclusion. In one sense, it's an appendix. It's an appendix. It's outside this big conversation, the dialogue back and forth between God and the nation of Israel. And here's those last three verses. Here's what it says. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. So it's this idea of pointing back and saying, hey, if you want an abundant life, you want a blessed life, you want to live the life that, that I really want you to live, God is saying, remember the law. It's talking about Moses and the 10 commandments and saying, hold fast to the moral law. So that's number one. Then he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. Now, remember, we said that there's two types of prophecies here. The first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, this section is actually talking about the first coming of Jesus. How do we know that? Because it's talking about Elijah. And Elijah does not get reincarnated. Elijah who did not die in the Old Testament, doesn't just show up. I know Jesus says multiple times in Matthew, then in Mark and then in Luke, that, that John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah. So we talked about that a little bit in chapter three, uh, that John the Baptist was this pre-messenger before Jesus. And so that's who it's talking about. So then this next part is talking about Jesus coming. And it says, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, in the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now that word lest means if this doesn't happen, then the most famous example would be in the Garden of Eden when God says, you can eat from any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. So that word lest is this, hey, this is true. And if you don't do this, then this will happen. And now here's what's fascinating about this verse. It's the last book in the Old Testament, last verse in the Old Testament. It's the last phrase of the Old Testament. Now, typically you wanna end strong. You wanna end with a conclusion that, that riles people up. It's communicating significance, importance. 
That's the thing that people are going to remember. And so if you're gonna wrap up the Old Testament, there's now 400 years between the Old Testament and Jesus. You're wrapping it up. What's that last thing you're gonna say? And it is turn the hearts of fathers towards your children and children towards their fathers, lest I curse the land that you walk on. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? It seems like an odd way to end. And yet when we look at the entire book of Malachi, it actually fits pretty well with the narrative. The book of Malachi has these two key themes when it comes to relationships. It's talking about the relationship that we have with God and then the relationship that we have with family. The relationship that you have with God is the single most important relationship in your life. It affects every other relationship in your life. Now, even for the person that doesn't have a relationship with God, unknowingly, it is affecting every other relationship in their life. And that when your relationship with God is first, and when your relationship with God is healthy, that will translate into healthier relationships with everyone else. We'll unpack what that looks like here in just a second. But then that second piece is that God over and over again is trying to discipline, trying to guide them so that they have healthier relationships with their family. That's why it ends with this idea that the God's desire for you, for me, for us, is that parents' hearts would be turned back towards their children and children's hearts would be turned back towards their parents. Now, think of a second of what would cause someone's heart to not be turned towards their children. Where does a parent turn their heart away from their kids? I think there's three things that come to mind. Number one is by ignoring their kids. So many different things that we can spend our time on in this world, this life. So many things that feel like they're really important. So many things that I think I need to do. And I can get so caught up in the rat race of stuff that I don't spend my time on the most important thing. That the most important relationship is my relationship with God. If you're married, the next most important relationship is the relationship you have with your spouse. And then the next most important thing in your whole life is the relationship you have with your kids. More important than your occupation, than your career, than your hobby, than anything else. But when we slowly spend less and less and less and less time with our kids, when they just become a distraction, it turns our heart unintentionally away from those kids. That next thing, can simply be disappointment. When we get disappointed in our kids over and over and over again, and we voice that disappointment over and over and over again, when we have false expectations on who we think our kids should be or needed to be, you see this all the time, sadly, with, with kids' sports. The, the parents are trying to live vicariously with, through their kid, and they have these high, high expectations, and then when they don't meet those expectations, there's disappointment, which leads to bitterness, which can lead to parents turning their hearts away from their kids. It can happen in all kinds of different areas of life. Your kid didn't end up being as great as you wanted them to be, and so you're disappointed, and so the relationship struggles. It can happen with abuse, whether it be verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse. The abuse is this awful, it's the worst, worst sin imaginable a sin against a child that is abusive, but where does it come from? I find that, that rarely, rarely is abuse because of anything in that relationship. No, it's, it's outside pain, it's outside struggle, it's outside frustration that someone in the position of power then thrusts down onto someone in a weaker position. So they're verbally abusive because of that. 
which can lead to being physically abusive because of that, as they've turned their heart away. And it breaks the heart of God. And the kids can have their hearts turned away from their parents because of those things, or it could be because of false expectations, or it could be because of a whole list of things that in response, they drift away. It's interesting if you talk to a lot of counselors, almost every counselor, when they sit down with someone, somewhere in that conversation, they go back to childhood, they go back to family, they go back to mom and dad, brothers and sisters. Because so much of the pain that people struggle with as an adult is because of pain that was inflicted upon them when they were young. God is saying, it's a message that we see in Malachi that if we could get healthy, first and foremost, our relationship with God, and then secondly, our relationship with our family, it changes everything in this world, in this life, and who God is calling me to be and you to be. That idea of family, is prevalent throughout Malachi. Here's a few different verses in Malachi dealing with family. Malachi 1.6 says, a son honors his father and his servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Malachi 2.10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It's saying that because we're not faithful to God, it's causing disruption in our relationships. And then the most famous passage in Malachi, dealing with relationships is talking specifically about marriage. It says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So, so God's not responding to them. They're weeping and crying. They're, they're asking God, why? Why won't you respond to us? Why does he not? And then it gives the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That word covenant, it's this word in Hebrew that means to cut. That's the root of it. And so when we think of marriage, we think of it as a covenant. A covenant is different than a contract. A contract means that I am going to work with you for something that's mutually beneficial for both of us. And so a contract requires negotiation. You're gonna give up some and you're gonna get some and I'm gonna give up some and I'm gonna get some and we're gonna come to some kind of agreement in the middle. That's distinctively different than a covenant. A covenant is not just two people, it's three. It's you, me, and God with God as the mediator. And, and covenant isn't just quid pro quo. No, it's both of us all in. That's why that word cut in the Old Testament, it's this idea of, of sacrificing animals, cutting them in half, putting them on the two sides, saying, I'm walking through it, and if I break this covenant, may I be cut in half like those animals. That's the idea. And why is it such a big deal? It goes on to say us. It, tell us, it says, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Now, you've been to enough weddings where you've heard the pastor get up and say, as God is our witness, they talk about the covenant of marriage. And they say that this covenant is not just done between human eyes, but it's done in front of God. And that's not just a cool thing that pastors came up with. No, it comes from scripture. It comes from right here. It's this idea that when two become one, that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is present and a part of that union. There is something holy that is happening. But what was happening in the book of Malachi? That you had... At that time in history, you, you had women that were very devalued. 
They were treated almost like property. They had almost no rights whatsoever, uh, which is why scripture over and over and over again, especially when looking through the context of when it was written, was speaking against what culture said. Culture at that time said women have no value. What does scripture say? Yes, they do. Because it's coming against these men who were being unfaithful to their wives, against these men who, who were marrying people outside their faith. And saying, no, you should not do that. And then it goes on more specifically. It says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So that God comes together to make them one. It says, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And part of the point of marriage is to be pouring into that next generation to raise up godly men and women to be all that God has created them to be. Now, now if you're here and you're like, well, I'm single. How does that apply to me? It's still the same thing applies to you. That we are called in this life by God to be handing on a spiritual legacy of who we are and who God calls us to be. And so if you are not pouring into someone else, if you're not pouring into them the biblical truth that God is calling them to be, if you're not speaking life into someone else, then you're falling short of the mandate that God has given us. Then it says, so guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So a man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It's different translations that say in that passage, God hates divorce. Now, now let me unpack really quickly because I know that's a sensitive subject. I've never met anyone who's been divorced that wouldn't agree that they hate divorce. No one loves divorce, no one likes divorce, no one's like, man, it's a wonderful, great, woohoo. Divorce is a tragic, terrible thing. But notice that it says that God hates divorce. He does not say that God hates the person who has been divorced. And so if you're here and you've been through divorce, don't think that that's the end. I realize that sometimes that can carry with it shame, but the whole picture of the gospel is that you can be redeemed because of God's grace and love. And so you can walk in freedom and not let that be something that hinders you. But the point of it is to help us to understand how seriously God is, is saying those two relationships. That one, that God wants a relationship with us, that we would live according to the way that he wants us to live. Because the fullest life that we could possibly have is in union with him. And then secondly, it's saying that if we would live in the right same relationship with him, that should affect how we live in the family units around us. It should affect how I treat my spouse. It should affect how I treat my kids. It should affect the values of my family. In 2008, there was a study that came out that became really popular. That basically said that the divorce rate inside the church for a Christian is the exact same as the divorce rate outside the church for a non-Christian. Anybody ever heard that? Somebody say that, that hey, the divorce rate's no different inside the church than outside the church. It became a very common thing that people said. Uh, the problem was the way that they conducted that study is they basically walked up to people and they said, they, they kind of had a checklist and it was like, have you been uh, divorced, yes or no? Are you a Christian, yes or no? And that's kind of how they did it. Uh, but the problem with asking someone if they're a Christian, especially in 2008, and especially, in the Southern part of our country is that most people culturally would say, well, yes, I am. Um, but claiming to be a Christian doesn't affect your life one way or another. It's actually acting like a Christian and living like a Christian. It's a whole lot like gym memberships. Having a gym membership does not make you healthier. 
You can have 10 gym, gym memberships. It does not make you any healthier. What actually makes you healthier? Going to the gym. The big distinction between having a gym membership and going to the gym. So when they've recently done studies, and I'll, I'll name three different people They've done studies that have found the same thing. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bradford Wilcox, he's the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. Uh, Shanti Fielden, um, she wrote a book called The Good News About Marriage. And then uh, uh, Harvard professor, Dr. Tyler Van Wheel. Uh, all of them got the same study. Uh, different ways, different people, completely different studies, all came up with the same conclusion. Here's what they found. The divorce rate, when two people not just claim to be Christian, but it actively attend church together, go to Bible study together and pray together. If you circle those things together, the divorce rate goes down between, on one study, it goes down by 35%. On another study, it goes down by 47%. But more important than that, uh, they found that all these other extra areas of benefit, that when they surveyed people that were extremely happy in their marriage, that almost, if you are someone who is a Christian, who attends church, who prays together, then you're almost 20% higher, more likely, 20% more likely to have an extremely happy marriage. Uh, the odds of having depression as a part of that relationship go significantly down as a result of attending church together, praying together, going to Bible study together. Now, why? So, so you have some secular people in some of these studies trying to, they're scratching their head like, well, why does that matter? Why does it make a difference? Here's what they found. And not only do going to church, does it, does it promote some moral ethics that are valuable, like loving one another, being sacrificial for one another. But here's the other thing they found, that it gives a point of anchor in a relationship that is consistent when people otherwise change. My wife and I this summer will have been married 17 years. Can I tell you that when we got married, I was 22 years old. I am a radically different person now than I was as a 22 year old. You are too. Every 10 years or so, your personality, some of your likes and dislikes, and some of you are like, yeah, you're thinking it right now. You're like, I'm married to someone. And I, I, if, I, if I didn't know any better, I wouldn't know who they are because what we tend to do is change. If we change without having anything in common, people can gradually wake up and say, well, I don't know you. Well, why should we stay married? But if the center of a relationship is founded on a relationship with Jesus, then there's something that is consistent despite anything else. It means that you can always be pursuing Jesus together. So your likes, your dislikes, your hobbies, even your personality might tweak or change. But if the foundation of your life stays consistent, it holds you together and it keeps you together. The way that Malachi ends is really trying to give us two things. It's trying to help us know how to live here on this earth our relationship with God, our relationship with family, how important it is. But then it's also trying to point us ahead and have hope for what we know is going to happen. That word hope, it really means this, realized eschatology. It's a churchy word, eschatology. It's the, the end times, it's what's going to happen eventually. And hope isn't just an idea, a wish, a desire. No, it's saying, I am certain that this is what's going to happen. I had a roommate in college. He was a huge Boston Red Sox fan. I have no clue why. He was from Dallas. So why he became a Red Sox fan, I don't know. But in college, uh, there was this really cool new thing that had come out. It was called TiVo. And he would TiVo every Boston Red Sox game that came on TV, which wasn't a ton of them. So as they played, he was recording it. Except he had this odd habit. Before he would sit down and watch the recording of the game, he would go check the score. 
And so after he checked the score, if the Red Sox had lost, he would erase the game. If they had won, he would sit down and watch. And I remember asking him at one point, I was like, why, why do you check the score? And why do you only watch if they win? And he said, it's because it makes it so much more enjoyable. He said, I'm never stressed out. I'm never anxious. I'm never worried about what's gonna happen. He said, my team could get down seven to two, but I know the outcome. I know the future. I know what's gonna happen. And so even though it feels stressful, I can be relaxed. That's what hope in Jesus is. Malachi's trying to say that Jesus comes back. Jesus returns. And if your hope is in Jesus, you don't have to be stressed. You don't have to be anxious. You don't maybe understand. You're still gonna go through the trials. You're still gonna go through the ups and the downs, but you can cling to hope, to know that Jesus wins. No matter what you're going through, Jesus wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Malachi. I got a, a book that is uncommon to so many of us and yet filled with so many truths. Lord, we thank you that there's so much practical, practical advice in the book of Malachi, that if we can get our relationship with you healthy, that, that so affects every other relationship in our life. Again, if we can get our relationships and our family healthy, it's the most important legacy that we can be passing on. And so God, I, I pray for, first and foremost, the brokenness in this room. God, those that have been through a divorce, those through or maybe going through divorce, God, those that have a broken family, they have a child that has run away from you or going through turmoil, God, I just pray for hope, for peace, God, for grace, for love, that they don't need to carry that shame and that guilt, but instead, God, give it over to you. Today is a new day. The path forward is a new path. Help them to focus on their relationship with you and do what they can to turn their hearts back towards you and towards their family. God, I pray for anyone in this room that, that is in the midst of that right now, especially those with young kids, God, that they could just be encouraged of what it means to live a life, to live a life that honors you and loves our family well. Lord, and I pray for all of us that we could cling to the hope, the realized eschatology, that you are returning, that you have one. And no matter how much this life flips upside down, God, we know that you win and that changes everything. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.